Thank you again for being here with us this morning. It is good to have you with us. Today we begin our new series called In Essentials Unity. And I want to begin by asking you a question. The question is this. Have you been conditioned? Have you been conditioned? Not so much like that, but a little bit more like this. A little bit more like that. Have you been conditioned? Have you been trained in a certain way? That is to live your life with your eyes wide open, always watching, always evaluating, always determining what is the appropriate course of action here. This past week, uh, my daughter, my oldest daughter started Taekwondo lessons, and I got to sit in as uh, the Jedi Master was conditioning her and her her, uh, fellow classmates, conditioning them to be focused, right? Conditioning them to evaluate situations, to size up their opponents, to train their brain and their muscles to react in predetermined ways and to know when it was appropriate to act out in those ways. Have you been conditioned? Chances are you have been conditioned. Maybe you haven't received martial arts training, but as you have walked through life, Through various uh, means and influences, you've learned to watch. You've learned to evaluate, to determine what is dangerous and what is safe. Who is friend and who is foe and how you should react to them. We're conditioned all over the place, right? We're conditioned on the playground. It starts early, doesn't it? Conditioned on the playground. We're conditioned in the workplace. We're conditioned in the home. We're conditioned by what we watch on TV, what we read in books, or what we're taught by our teachers in class. Parents condition, bosses condition, teachers condition, political parties condition us, don't they? Even health officials condition, make no mistake. (laughs) And we could look at who is responsible for our conditioning, and we could probably point fingers in all sorts of different directions, can't we? It's kind of like uh, maybe you've seen an animal, right, that, that seems to be just dominated by fright. And even the most gentle, uh, non-aggressive gestures towards that animal, you see them, them recoil and, and strike out. Someone must, have, someone must have really abused this poor creature. And we can look at ourselves and, and we can say, you know what, someone must have made them like that. Someone must have made them like that. There must be something, some experience that marked their life, that changed them forever. Maybe it was something in their past, or maybe it was a message that was communicated to them. Maybe it was a lie. Something gripped them and changed them deep down inside in their core. And we can say that, and to some extent, We're right. And yet in another sense, I think we're looking in the wrong direction. According to the Bible, the conditioning that we have all experienced at its core has deeper roots than the things that influence us on on the outside. The thing that has made us who we are, it lies deep down within our very souls. James writes this, what causes quarrels, what causes fights among you? 
Is it not this? That your passions are at war within you. You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. Jeremiah 17, 9 says this. The heart, it's the heart that is deceitful above all things. It's what's desperately sick. Who can understand it? Now, there's no denying that our environment has an impact on us, a shaping influence on us, who we are, who we become. And yet the Bible tells us that it is the predisposition of our hearts away from their maker and toward themselves that is the real source of all of our problems. Any any predisposition that we have to divide or, or, or to isolate ourselves, to fortify our defenses, or to forge an arsenal is the result of turning away from God and venturing off into all sorts of different directions. We all have our own way of doing it, right? We're all unique in that way. And yet at their core, the, the motivator, the motivator within us is, is the same. It, it says something like, oh, obey your thirst, or follow the dream that's in your heart. Or, or, or pursue uh, your dream. Do what is right in your own eyes. In the past uh, several years, uh, we've seen a tremendous exodus in the church. We've seen young people leaving the church in, in droves. A recent survey that uh, one of our congregants sent to me just recently, it, it, it I quote, suggests that many young people perceive a disconnect between themselves and the houses of worship that need believers to sustain their congregations. Half of young people, ages 13 to 25 surveyed, said they don't think religious institutions care as much as they do about issues that matter deeply to them. One young man said this, I hear what priests and pastors say at at the pulpit and say to myself, no, that's not what I believe in my heart. And there you have evidence. Evidence that it's, 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 it's the heart that is leading us. It's the heart that is conditioning us. It's the heart that rules the day, that tells us where we should go, who we should associate with, and how we should react to one another and how we, who we encounter. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not your passions that are at war within you? Why do we, why do we have arguments and wars? And why do we have people taking advantage of each other? People fighting to be heard, fighting to be noticed, fighting to get their own way or to prove themselves right, fight for their honor. Why do we have families exploding? We got sons, we got daughters, we got husbands, we got wives, we got grandparents cutting one another down, never speaking to one another again. And why do we walk away from God's word? What it says is true to chart our own course. It's because we're a people who is ruled by what is within. We're ruled by our hearts. Deep-seated internal desires shape our perception of the world 
and then lead us to see things not as they are, but how we want them to be. And then we act accordingly. It's the passions within. It's the hearts that, that don't beat in sync with the maker who designed them. It's the problem that all of us have that the, that the Bible summarizes in, in one three-letter word. S, it's not the word you're thinking, right? S-I-N. And it's killing us. We just read in Ephesians 2 last week, we had baptisms outside, we read this out there. we got to revisit it again. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Who are the sons of disobedience? What's everyone out there who's not living in obedience to God? It's all of us. He says, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This is everyone. You know, the world we live in is trying to buy into this idea that the solution to the passion problem, the solution to the, the hearts that beat within us, that reverberate within in us, the solution is to affirm them. And set them free. Just let them go wherever they want. Why are so many young people walking away from church in droves? It's because that they are being told that the one and only thing that really matters, more than anything else, more than, more than what the textbooks tell you, more than, more than so-called authorities or so-called truth that's out there, even more than what you see with your eyes and what you hear with your ears and what you could touch and feel with your hands, which you can observe, what matters more than any of that is what this says. Not the organ, but the, the whole self says to you, everything else that can rule your, your life, that wants to speak into your life and tell you otherwise, don't buy that. That's an oppressor. That's an enemy. Don't listen to anyone or anything else that tells you otherwise. God's word tells us something different. It tells us that that is nothing but a lie. In fact, it's the oldest, most sinister lie, most deadly lie that we were told all the way back at the very beginning. The first human beings that ever walked this planet bought into this lie. Don't listen to God. Don't listen to what he has to say. In fact, you know better than he does, and you know how to satisfy yourself in much better ways than he does. You know what's best for you. Oh, yeah, we've come a long way, haven't we? We've come a long way. Some advanced society we have become. We're doing the very same thing that the first, our first ancestors did all the way back in Genesis 3. This is ridiculous, and we think it's revolutionary. We think, oh my gosh, follow your dream, obey your thirst. Wow, that's, that's revolutionary. We're still convincing ourselves that the answer to all of our problems is listening to the idiot inside. That's nothing new. It's nothing revolutionary. It's the same old self-destructive thinking that has conditioned us. 
And what has it conditioned us to do? To divide, to oppress, to take advantage of, to despise and hate one another. And this is the norm, isn't it? This is the, this is the status quo. This is the typical. We're conditioned by the passions and beliefs of our own hearts. But, this is my favorite word, and I think it's some of your favorite word too, but, if you've placed your trust in Jesus Christ, that isn't you anymore. A while back, we were experiencing yet another uh, bout of terrible riots in the streets, terrible violence, and someone asked me, you know, what's, what's the answer here? This is just, isn't this insane? What is happening? How are we going to fix this? And I know that my, and my answer to him was totally unsatisfactory, and he was not content with it, but I think it's true, and I know it's true. The only way we're going to fix this is to address the heart And the only way to change what is going on in here is by introducing the work of Jesus Christ to it. Amen? This is what we need. We need a change of hearts. Anything else is just a band-aid. It's just a band-aid. Colossians 1.21 says, And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Ephesians told us we were living in the passions of our flesh, carrying out those desires of our body and mind, and we were dead while we were doing it. But God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. So there was a time when humanity was without hope, when they were destined to go round and round and round and round until they finally made their plunge down the drain. But God intervened. He did something that would would change the course of our lives. He sent Jesus, and Jesus addresses the heart of the problem. You may have heard Ezekiel 36, where God said that there is coming a day when I will sprinkle clean water on you. You shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols, I I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. My friends, that day has come. And it came when Jesus Christ went to the cross and didn't stay there when he rose from the dead. That day comes when people who could do nothing other than run their own way, no ability to return to right relationship with their maker, to, to, to live the way that he designed them to live, when they surrender to Jesus Christ and trust in him as their one and only hope, that's when that day comes.
Has that day come for you? In an instant, in less than a thousandth of a second, they're brought from death to life. Hearts that were cold and callous towards God and, and, and callous toward one another. They're warmed and softened and begin beating as they were always meant to. They're reconditioned to know, love, and serve their maker. The horizontal relationship that, that was broken with him has been restored. Rebellion has been replaced with, with relationship and worship. No longer war with God, but now there's peace. There's no longer hatred, but now there's reconciliation. And Peter tells us that those who have placed their trust in Jesus, they've been called out of darkness and thrust into his marvelous light. They've been called out. You know, uh, the, the Greek word for church, it means the called out ones. Those, those who have been called out and assembled together. What Peter describes in 1 Peter 2.9 is the reality of the church, the called out ones. This is the result of the saving, transforming work of Jesus. People who share that common transformation and that unifying experience as they're called out of darkness and placed in his marvelous light. You are a chosen race, he writes, a royal priesthood, a holy nation a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This work that Jesus Christ has accomplished, think about it, it's the antithesis of what happened when we walked away at the fall. It's the exact opposite, isn't it? Sin brought jealousy and division and strife. Sin pulls apart. It creates tribes. It creates factions. Sin, it pretends to pull people together out of love, but the love that they thought they had for each other wasn't the selfless, God-designed love that they were meant to have. It was the self-serving, self-gratifying, content until it's not content, and faithful until it feels like being unfaithful kind of love, the kind of love that hurls couples together out of, out of the passions that are burning deep within them, and then it blows marriages to pieces when those desires seem like they might be met better somewhere else. The kind that builds friendships out of, out of common interests, and then it burns them down from irreconcilable differences. What Jesus does in bringing the church, pulling people out of darkness, putting them in his marvelous light, and bringing them together as his people, it is the antithesis of the fall. And it brings about antithetical forgiveness. The transformed hearts that, that Christ has put in his people, they, they tell them that 
no matter how badly they've wronged each other, how, how horribly they have oppressed or have offended one another, their offenses have been forgiven. They've been washed away by the blood of Jesus Christ. They, they can no longer look at each other and demand justice of each other. Restitution. I want it. No, 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 no. Because offenses, the offenses of their neighbor, along with their own offenses, they were already brought to justice. Restitution has already been made. Do you know where it was made? It was made at the cross. It's over. It is over. It is done. And so we now in the church can experience this antithetical kind of forgiveness. It's totally different than the world's kind of forgiveness. The world's kind of forgiveness is you pay me back every red cent you owe me or every red cent you owed my great-great-grandfather. No, it was paid for at the cross. There's antithetical forgiveness. There is antithetical identity the transformed hearts that Christ has put in his people, it draws people together. And not because of similar personalities or, or preferences or, or, or skin colors or heritages or cultures. It, it doesn't bring them together because they, they're attracted to each other. Wow, you look pretty good. I think I'll hang out with you. No, it doesn't do that. You know, not because they think that by hanging out with this person or that person, they're going to get wealthier or be more satisfied or be more fulfilled by being together. No! They're drawn together because they've been drawn to Christ. And now they have a common identity in him. On level ground, they stand at the foot of their cross. And on level ground, they're, they're raising their arms and they're praising the one who rescued them out of darkness and who set them free. On level ground, they are thanking and worshiping their Savior. No one is more precious than he is in their sight. Sin drove them apart. Christ brings them together under a new identity as his people. You might look at me and you see this tall white guy who went premature gray. That's not who I am. And you might try to look at my political affiliation. You might try to look at my education. You might try to look at my family background. You might try to look at where I came from. And you might try to label me like that. And I might try to label you on, those, on that basis as well. I am not that. And you are not that if you have placed your trust in Jesus Christ. The thing that marks you more than anything else is Jesus Christ. An antithetical identity in him. There's antithetical worth. As Christ implants within his people the desires of their hearts, they look at each other and they value one another as people that he loved enough to give his life for. And they look at each other and they see people of tremendous worth, people who, as Peter said, have received mercy. And so because he loves them, they love each other. If you place your trust in Jesus, you're part of this, this antithetical people. You're part of the church. But you and I know that it's one thing to be a part of something, right? One thing to be a part of something. One thing to identify as something. And a totally different thing to expose it. 
We're living in a world right now that is encouraging people to not only be who they think or believe themselves to be, but to make sure that everyone else knows who they are as well. And so you need to be proud of who you are. Yes, you need to be proud of who you are, but then you need to step out from your hiding and hold your head high and let the world know about it. And in fact, make sure that the world not only acknowledges it, but accepts it and celebrates it and praises it. And this applies to anyone and everything, and anyone. It's a wonderful thing, isn't it? It applies to everyone. Except who? The church. Everyone is welcome to come out into the open and make their identity public. But Christians, oh, no, 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 wait, wait a second. Your faith, that's a, that's a different thing. That's a, that's a private thing. That's a personal thing. You can believe that there is a God. That's, that's fine. And you can even believe that, that he's going to hold you accountable one day. I, I won't judge. <laughs> But don't you dare take that public. Don't you dare let that kind of thinking enter the public sector. Don't you dare let it affect your work. Don't you dare bring it into the classroom or what you think of public education. Why? Because of who you are on the inside? No. That's not the problem. Who you are on the inside, that's fine, that's fine. You be you. The problem is, is that it is antithetical. It doesn't jive with the direction of society. In fact, it calls into question our, our culture's right to do or be whatever it wants. It's the antithesis of what the heart inside everyone desires. Our world wants you to keep your mouth shut. It wants you, it wants us, to keep our faith private, and your life looking as much like everyone else as it possibly can. Let's assimilate here, people. Let me tell you this. If you have placed your trust in Jesus Christ, and you are now a part of that chosen race, that royal priesthood, that holy nation, that people for his own possession, then keeping quiet and blending in with the crowd is not an option, not an acceptable option. You are called, we are called to go public. What did 1 Peter 2.9 say? You're called to proclaim his excellencies, the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. You need to proclaim it. Not only are you called to proclaim it with your mouths, we are actually called to show it, aren't we? You're called to give a picture of what it looks like to a watching world. And this actually begins with baptism. We just had baptisms on our campus last week. I think we may have one next week, maybe the week after that. It's, it's coming real soon. It's exciting. It's great. It's wonderful. But it all kind of begins with baptism. You place your trust in Jesus Christ, and the very next thing that needs to happen is for you to declare it to the congregation, to fellow believers, and so when you're baptized, you stand there in front of everyone and you say, Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior. Okay, what does that mean? Well, that means that he died on the cross for my sin, took the punishment that I deserved upon himself, and he paid for it right then and there. You proclaim that. And we had some people do so in very simple fashion last week. But they not only say it with their mouths, they give a picture, don't they? 
They give a visible picture to everyone there of what Christ has done. And so they're lowered down into the water as, as my daughter was lowered down this past week. And as they're, they're doing so, they're declaring that their sin was brought to justice as it was judged on the cross, upon Jesus at the cross. And as they go down into the water, they are recognizing their sin is dead. It is paid for. Their old life is gone. It was buried with him. They don't stay down, typically. I haven't had anyone stay down thus far. I'm not saying it couldn't happen. Uh, fair warning. But when you rise up out of the water, you remind everyone that Jesus Christ, just as he was raised, you're no longer the same. Death is no longer the stamp on your, fo on your forehead. Take that tag off your toe. You are now alive, living in his glorious life. He raises you to new life. And that's what P Peter said, that we, the church, have been brought out of darkness and into Christ's marvelous light for. We've been called to people for his own possession that we might proclaim. We, the church, use our mouths to proclaim the work of Christ. But you know what? It doesn't end there. And it mustn't end there. Just like baptism gives us a picture of the work that Christ has done in you, your very life, every step from that day forward, is to be a picture to everyone else of what your Savior looks like. Peter goes on in verse 11. Beloved, he loves this people. He loves this church. Beloved. I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may what? They may see. They may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Notice, notice he, doesn't, he points out the church doesn't belong here anymore, does it? I mean, we're, we're supposed to be here. God has us here. We don't belong here anymore. This is not our home. This is not our identity. This is not where we belong. Your sojourners, your exiles, the people that God has called out of darkness, they don't belong here, but they do need to, while they are here, they do need to look different. Does your life look different? Does my life look different? If someone took a close look at my life, would they be able to tell that I wasn't that same old person who lived before I met Jesus Christ? Would they be able to see that that old life is, is, is dead and gone? That old self-centered heart isn't what drives me anymore. Would they be able to see that I'm not ruled by that anymore? The church is called to give a picture to an unbelieving world that its members, as its members, abstain from those passions, those old desires inside that, that Jesus Christ is reigning in their life. 
their conduct is at all times to be honorable. Why? So that even though, even when they say, ah, these guys are awful people, look, they believe this and they believe that and they believe the other thing, but then they look at your life and it is undeniable that there is good there. Boy, it's tempting to fight fire with fire, isn't it? We see a world that's circling the drain, and we want to do everything in our power to lash out, to confront it, to rise against it. They cut us off, what are we going to do? We're going to cut them off. They sue us, we're going to sue them. They make our lives miserable, I'm going to make your life miserable. And so on it goes. But we've been called out as the antithesis. Just as men and women were first designed by God as his image bearers to show the rest of creation what God is like, so the church has been called out of darkness so that it might be a strange sight to the rest of the world. Yes, you are called to be strange. Not like Weird Al. Like Jesus. Christ called people out of darkness that it might show the world what he is like. 1 Corinthians 11, 1, Paul tells the church, he says, be imitators of me. Sounds kind of prideful at first, but you got to read that second part there. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Essentially, he's saying, Christians, church, be like me. Guys, I'm doing all that I can to show you what it looks like to live like Jesus. Look at my life. So that you might get an idea, you might have a picture of what someone whose life belongs to Jesus looks like. You might show the world what Jesus looks like. Jesus is the, the antithesis of who we were. We rebelled, we went our own way. What did that bring? That brought sin, that brought death. Thank you very much. That's what Adam accomplished. Christ was faithful and obeyed, and that brought resurrection and life. Paul, Paul says in, in, in chapter 15, verse 22, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Church, we're called to be like Christ. To not only tell others about him, but to show them with our lives a picture of what he is like. And my, my fear for the church in America and around the world is that we are failing miserably to show the world the strangeness, the wonderful, strange, antithetical life of Jesus that is within. Just a few minutes I, ha I have left here. I just want to remind you of, of, of three ways that we're called as the church to look like Jesus, the antithetical, strange way we are to live in this world that we're, we're here in. First of all, we're called to be holy and blameless, not entertaining, not have incredible subwoofers in here that just blow our socks off and video presentations of laser lights that wow audiences. We are called to be holy. How trendy is that? <laughs> holy and blameless. Paul was writing a letter, the letter of 1 Corinthians, to a church that had gone sideways. People were suing each other. People were doing 
all sorts of immoral sexual things with each other. Some, some he points out, the, 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 the Gentiles, the non-Christians don't even do this stuff. You guys take the cake here. People were, were doing things that violated each other's consciences. They're filled with all sorts of pride and jealousy. They were fighting. Husbands and wives were withholding and manipulating each other. And Paul reminds them in his first letter that they were sanctified. Just a, a fancy theological word for set apart. They were set apart in Jesus Christ. Set apart for holiness. Set apart for purity. They were supposed to be guiltless, he reminds them in chapter 1, verse 8. Their bodies weren't met, meant for sexual immorality. They were saved for the Lord, verse 6, 6.13. In 3.16, he writes, Do you not know you are God's temple? God's Spirit dwells within you. That you he's talking about. He's not talking about individuals. He's talking about the church as a whole. You're God's temple. You're God's people. His spirit dwells within you. So what? Okay, that's great. I'm God's temple. So what? He goes on. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. Yeah, this is serious stuff. For God's temple is what? Holy. And you are that temple. The holiness of the church matters to God deeply. You are called to be a strange people, a people that is holy, that is set apart as God is set apart and holy. And that means refusing to look like the rest of the world. Well, does that mean I can't watch TV? Does that mean I can't watch movies? Does that mean I can't wear stylish clothes? Does that mean I can't go down the street, down to the beach, and, and, and put on a swimsuit? Does that mean I can't watch uh, uh, sports? Does that mean I, I can't have a glass of wine? No, 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 no. But it does mean that in everything that we do, we're to do so out of pure hearts that desire to be obedient to God and glorify Him and not trip each other up, right? So whether you eat or drink, Paul says, or whatever you do, do all in the glory, to the glory of God. And so when you're enjoying entertainment, you're asking yourself, is, is this honoring to God? Is, is this causing the person sitting next to me to, to trip up here? And when you're, when you're getting dressed in the morning, you're thinking about whether or not your appearance brings glory to God rather than, not, rather than bringing attention to yourself. And when you're deciding what you're going to eat and what you're going to drink, you're, you're thinking about how much am I going to have here? How much should I have? And you're making the decision, a conscious decision, I'm not going to be gluttonous and I am not going to give way to drunkenness. Because I am to be controlled by the Holy Spirit. Everything that we do matters. Every decision that we make makes a statement, doesn't it? Just like Christ, we are to be like Him. We're to be holy. We're to be the antithesis. A people set apart for His own glory. Church, we need to be holy. 1 Peter 1.14 tells us, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Your former ignorance, that's who you were. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, 
for I am holy. Called to holiness. Secondly, we're called to be united. The Corinthian church was plagued by division. They were supposed to be separate from the world. What they ended up being was separate from each other. And Paul tells them in 1.10, he tells them, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. He goes on in verse 13 to say this, is Christ divided? Well, the world around us, it, it turns in on itself constantly, doesn't it? Constantly looking for ways to tear each other down, to cancel each other out. That's what it does. We see it all over the place. We, on the other hand, are called to be united. Why? Because we've been brought together in Christ. And Christ is not divided. In fact... This is something really important for us to think about. When we argue and when we divide and when we fight and when we separate, we tell everyone around us, we give them a picture that what Christ did on the cross as he reconciled, he repaired the relationship between us and God and us and each other, that wasn't really effective. It wasn't really all that great. Let me tell you about Jesus. Meanwhile, we're beating each other up. Just as Christ has forgiven us, we're called to forgive each other, Ephesians 4.32. When we don't forgive each other, we demonstrate that the power of the gospel is not all that it's cracked up to be. May I say that's the last thing that we want to do. On the contrary, by our words, by our actions, by our strange unity, we want to declare to the world that the gospel of Christ is the power of God for salvation, for anyone, even those weirdos over there, anyone who would believe. Church, it's called to be holy. It's called to be united. Finally, it's called to be loving. Boy, that seems like a no-brainer, doesn't it? And yet that's the hardest thing. If you read through Paul's letter to 1 Corinthians, you, you, you don't have to look very hard to realize they had a love problem, a serious love problem. They couldn't love each other. They were continually putting their own individual interests above each other. They weren't, they weren't the antithesis, not by a long shot. They were reverting to those old desires. They were, they were unpacking, they were, they were digging up their old hearts and putting them back inside and saying, hey, uh, we're going to follow those desires. Some people, were, some people were scarfing up all of the communion food. Too cheap to go get a meal on their own? No, we get to church. Oh, there's going to be bread there. All right, all right, kids, grab some, put it in your pocket, put it in your purse. <laughs> Can you believe it? Some were arguing that, that their form of Christianity, it's better than yours over there. You know, I follow Paul. No, I follow Paulus. No, mine's better than yours. Some were using their freedom to offend and trip other Christians up. I'm going to eat this food. You know, you don't like that food? Watch me eat it. <laughs> some were using their God-given gifts, spiritual gifts to prop themselves up, make them look more spiritual like any, like than everyone else. You've never seen that happen in the church, have you? So Paul makes it clear that in everything they do must be done in love. Just as Christ loved them, they're to love each other, even when it comes to those spiritual gifts. In fact, he says, earnestly desire the greater gifts, people. What were those greater gifts? You know what they were? They were the gifts that were obviously being used to build up and encourage the rest of the church. 
that, that just so evidently blessed the socks off the church. He says in 1231, earnestly desire the higher gifts, but I'll show you an even more excellent way. What is more excellent than the spiritual gifts? Chapter 13, love. If I speak with tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong, clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers, wow, understand all mysteries, all knowledge. If I have all faith, some kind of superhero Christian, so as to move mountains, I'm moving mountains here. But I have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all that I have, deliver my body up to be burned, oh, what a great sacrifice that guy made. But have not love, I gain nothing. Paul was intimately aware of the need for members of the church to be loving toward one another. He knew what it meant to tear the church down and rip it to shreds, didn't he? He devoted his whole life to it. 15.9, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. He'd been down that road, knew full well what it was to be on the other side, to be someone who had fought against God and his people. But by the grace of God, by the grace of God, just as many of you, by the grace of God, have experienced a powerful transformation in Christ. He'd given him a new heart. Has he given you a new heart? transformed him into someone antithetical to his old self. So what about us, church? Faculty, staff, some of you are with us this morning, called out of darkness into his marvelous light. Are we the antithesis of all that we were before? Over the next few weeks, we're going to be exploring together the things that set us apart and also bring us together and my prayer is that we'll be encouraged, that we'll be better equipped to be the people that God has called us to be, who he saved us to be, saved to be strangers and aliens, saved to be light in a dark world, saved to be the glorious antithesis that points others to our one and only hope. As Christ's people, may we proclaim his excellencies, both with our words and with our lives. May we be holy as he who called us is holy. May we be united as he has brought us together and united us in himself. And may we love each other as he first loved us. This morning we have an opportunity to look at another picture. The picture of Christ's body and blood that were sacrificed for us. We have the blood that represents Christ or the juice that represents Christ's blood. We have the bread that represents the body that was sacrificed for us. This is transformational. And as we take this, we say, yes, this is, this is for me. This is my hope. Not these physical things, but Christ and what he did for me. And I'm going to pray in just a moment, and then I'm going to invite Corey to come up, and he's just going to play a little. And uh, what I would encourage you to do is take this, 
And if you have someone next to you that you know, maybe it's, maybe it's a loved one, maybe it's a family member, maybe it's just a friend, get, get together with them as close as you feel comfortable with and just, just pray together. And then take the bread and take the juice together, thanking God for what he has done for you. And if you're here by yourself, you can do that, that on your own. But let's make this a, a time of reflection and celebration. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you for the sacrifice of your son, Jesus Christ, and for his resurrection, because that changes everything. Thank you for the work that you have done inside of us, for the new hearts that you have given us. Lord, we pray that you would continue to mold and shape us into people who look like Jesus Christ. We love you. In Christ's name.